0: Please rise as we hear the call of our Heavenly Father. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what have we been called to do? Praise the name of the Lord? Let's do so, beginning with the doxology in the hymnal uh, 570. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then we'll be singing Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, my soul, O oh, praise Him. So we'll begin with 570 and then 146. <laughs> grace. The reason why we're here is because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of the freedoms that you've given to us in this country to gather in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here in our midst. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher today. Make us disciples. Enable us to hear, to receive. Open our hearts to receive your word and plant it deep within us and make it fruitful, we ask. For your glory's sake. Bless us in order that we may be a blessing that the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
1: We do have a calling, an opportunity to confess our sins this morning, and we'll do that with aid of a responsive reading found in your bulletin. The responsive reading comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll read the light type if you could respond in the dark. From where do you know your misery? Out of the law of God. What does the law of God require of us? Christ Christ teaches us in some. Matthew 22, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, for I am prone by nature to hate God and am my neighbor.
0: I was reading through the Book of Isaiah in my devotions and. As I was reading, I found the following statement. God speaking. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick Who sit among the graves, who spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now, those are those bad people back then. Doesn't apply to us today. Right? Those are those wicked people. I'm glad you laughed. I'm glad you laughed. No, we're included there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you, and we find that in ourselves, in Adam especially, but in ourselves dwells no good thing, that your word is clear. There's none that seeks you, and none understands, that we've all turned out the wrong way. We do acknowledge that. We don't want to ignore it. We don't want to point fingers. We don't want to say, well, she's better, than, worse than me, or he's worse than me. We want to acknowledge that we've offended you. As we read today, that you call us to love you with everything, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And yet, as we look at our, our attitudes, our hearts, even this morning, even this day, Uh, As we rise, how often we do not live that command. We do not love you with all. And furthermore, we have sinned against those created in your image. Our brothers and sisters, our children, our parents, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbor. And so we understand that this is a command, a perfect law of liberty, and yet we have violated your revealed will. And worse, we've offended you personally. And you would be just to punish us in hell for all eternity because of our sin, even one sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God The grace of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so again, we come, we bow the knee, we acknowledge our need of a Savior. Our Savior, the only Savior, is Jesus Christ. His name, Jesus, means that he will save his people from their sins. And so we do look to you once again, Lord Jesus. Your completed work on the cross. We hear your word from the cross It is finished. The debt has been paid. And so we believe that. We believe that all our sins are forgiven us only through your sacrifice. And we are righteous in Christ, in you, before God. Your perfect righteousness is imputed to us and received by faith alone. And so we stand as the called. We stand as those who are redeemed. And so may the redeemed of the Lord come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy be upon their heads. Enable us, O oh Lord, to believe that our sins are truly forgiven through Christ and open our lips so we may show forth your praises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have opportunity to celebrate uh, What is the most important place to be? And that is in Christ alone, in the person and work of Christ. That's the most important place to be. And so let us turn in our hymnals to 265, in Christ alone. And let us stand and let us celebrate what he has done for us, what he is doing and what he will do. many times, I've said this a number of times, let's see if anybody remembers, beside you. Um, How many times does Paul, the Apostle Paul, say, in Christ, in him? Anybody remember? It's important to him, and it should be to us, in Christ, 67 times, 67 times. Is it important to be in Christ? What happens if you're not in Christ? You're outside of Christ, in Adam. There's only two people in the world, those in Adam and those in Christ. Where are you? That's the question, the most important question today. All right, so we have opportunity for those who profess Christ. How often should we make public confession Of Christ? Should we do it daily? How about at least once a week? Once a day? All the day? Right? To live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul said. So we have an opportunity to confess the triune God with the church for almost 1,700 years using the Nicene Creed. So if you'll turn in your hymnals to page number 852. There were 300 years of battles concerning understanding the triune God, the Trinity, and the two natures of Christ. And this is the fruit of that. And the church has confessed the triune God. In this, Using this creed since, so let us together confess, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, amen. And again, the word Catholic means universal. We believe in the universal body of Christ. We're not talking about Romans. We're talking about the universal body. All right, and also you will find in the bulletin a half sheet there. Uh, on one side will be the song we'll sing uh, later, or actually we'll sing in a moment. And on the other side you will find Uh, The Canons of Dort, Fifth Head of Doctrine, the Perseverance of the Saints, or as I like to say, the Perseverance of God for the Saints. Uh, We're uh, now entering into the Rejection of Errors. Again, as a reminder, the Synod of Dort in 1619 uh, was given uh, the task of uh, observing or studying and um, coming to understanding with what the complaints of the Remonstrants were, concerning these were pastors in the Reformed Church in the Netherlands who wanted to teach the following things, um, in a sense, uh, what we would call Arminianism. And so the synod sat down and took a year or so. They sent uh, there were representatives from all over Europe that came. Um, theologians from England and Scotland, and well, France was for, uh, forbid them, but they did write um, Germany and, and so on, and so they wrestle with the things that were at requested and rejected at a lot of, of what they said, and so what we have here is the rejection of error. So uh, what is stated first is what was on that complaint and then the refutation of it. So we'll read that out loud. I'll read the light type, if you'll please read the dark type. Paragraph one, the synod rejects the errors of those who teach that the perseverance of the true believers is not a fruit of election or a gift of God gained by the death of Christ, but a condition of the new covenant which, as they declare, man before his decisive election and justification must fulfill through his free will. For the Holy Scripture testifies that this follows out of election and is given the elect in virtue of the death, the resurrection, and intercession of Christ. But the elect attain it and the rest were hardened. Likewise, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. The Synod rejects the errors of those who teach that God does not indeed provide the believer with sufficient powers to persevere. And is ever ready to persevere these, uh, preserve these in him, if he will do his duty. But that though all things which are necessary to persevere in faith, and which God will use to preserve uh, faith, are made use of, even then it is ever dependent on the pleasure of the will, whether it will persevere or not. For this idea contains an outspoken Pelagianism, and while it would meant free, it makes them robbers of God's honor, contrary to the prevailing agreement of the evangelical doctrine, which takes from man all cause of boasting and ascribes all the praise for this favor to the grace of God alone. And contrary to the apostle who declares that it is God who shall also confirm unto the end that you may be unreprovable in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the issue has to do with perseverance, the doctrine uh, or the teaching of perseverance. And the question is, is it's difficult to determine because we're still alive, we're still on this earth, we're still at war. And so the question arises, am I gonna gonna persevere to the end? Is it really difficult? Depends where your eyes are. If your eyes are on me, I don't know about you, but my faith is like sand. If it's all based on me, in my choosing, in my faith, in my perseverance, I'm in trouble. How about you? But if it's on the sovereignty of God, if it's on the grace of God, if it's on the mercy of God, if it's on God who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ. If it's based upon the sovereignty of God, he preserves his elect, is it difficult? No. No. God wins, right? God wins. And so, this is, again, we're dealing with some errors. Note, the, in essence, what is the cause and source, according to the Arminian. They taught that perseverance is the cause of election. In other words, they taught a conditional election, God chooses you because he sees that you're going to choose him. God chooses you because he sees you're going to persevere until the end. Do you hear that? Whereas the argument is the cause of, of, um, um, yeah, so then perseverance is conditional. The church taught that election, the choice of God, is the cause of perseverance. In other words, it's unconditional. And so that's the debate. Is election God's choice or your choice? Who's the final decider? Why? Because it is based upon God's good pleasure. Is that in the Bible? That God chooses according to his own pleasure? He's God. One of the things we have to be careful of, I don't know about you, but I have a, I have a tendency, I want to make God according to my understanding of God. Right? I have a hard time with, with some of the things that the Bible says. It's hard. I want a God that I can understand. But what is that? Is that idolatry? Is that forming something else, making a different God than has he, as he is and as he revealed? Let God be true. What's the rest of that passage? Every man a liar. We have to submit to God's revelation of himself, not create a God after our own imagination. It's hard, isn't it? It humbles us. God, I don't understand. Right? I only believe what I understand. Is that true of you? I met a man many years ago who didn't believe in the Trinity because he couldn't understand the Trinity. I spent two years working with him, and it finally came down to your faith is in your brain rather than the Word of God. What about you? Notice in our answer here, what are they doing? They're quoting scripture in answer to this question. It is God who justifies. Christ died, raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Will the Father hear the prayers of Christ for for his elect, for his people? And the answer is yes. Secondly, second question. Sovereignty of man's will and a dependent God. Notice the statement, if. There. It is ever ready to preserve these in him if he will do his duty. And the answer is, no, God's grace is sovereign. The sovereign grace alone and a dependent man or woman. And notice the reference to Pelagianism. If you don't know what, who Pelagius was or what he taught, study it. Look it up. Um, it, it's it's heresy. Even the Roman Catholics declare Pelagianism as heresy. So beware. Again, I trust this over this. Even over this, do you? All right, let's go ahead. And prepare, taking that half sheet again, turning it on the other side. The hymn, Rise Up, O Man of God, a tune we know, right? Play it through once. Let's stand. our text this morning, and that is Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 17 through 24. Here now the pure word of God. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, As the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this portion of your holy word. We thank you for sending the Spirit who not only guided Paul to write these things, but who is here with us today, even now. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us that we would be disciples, we would be students in the school of Christ. Enable us, O Lord, to hear and receive and trust and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you a follower of Jesus? How do you follow someone who is moving? You follow by moving, by walking. Our Lord Jesus gathered around him various disciples in his earthly ministry. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 57, we read the following. So if if you'll turn with me to that, the end of chapter 9. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me go and bid farewell to those uh, who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow, And looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Notice these different calls to follow Jesus. And notice the different answers. What does it mean in verse 62 that look back when Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit? for the kingdom of God. Well, the idea is, is as you're plowing, right, and what happens when you're plowing with an oxen and, and a plow, and you start looking around, sort of looking head up, straight on, what's going to happen to the furrow? It's going to go like this. Many years ago, I was in uh, Lyndon, Washington, and I, I was considering a call to a church there, and the elder that I was staying with Uh, He had to plow 10 acres of his land, and he let me drive. At that time, it was an $80,000 tractor. That was back in 1997. That same tractor probably would be a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, He had everything available. And um, as we were plowing, he said, one of the things that you have to be careful. He had to get out of the tractor and, and had me continue driving it. And he said, whatever you do, make sure you keep the furrow straight. Because all the other farmers in the neighborhood are all going to drive by, and they look and make sure that everybody's furrows are straight. And they mock anybody whose furrow is like this. Okay, And so I don't want to have to deal with that. So make sure you run the plow straight. While I'm running, I hit a rock and broke the plow, but... Is that what Jesus is saying here? No man putting his, his, uh, his, what is it, the right word? His hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does God calls us to do? In, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, fix your eyes on, on Jesus, the author of, what does an author do? Author writes The author and perfecter of the faith. He's the author of your faith. He's the one who will complete it. Hmm. Did we just talk about that? Yeah, we did. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that which you began to do, do it with all that is within you. Ultimately God is the one who gives you the ability. Whether I eat or drink or whatever I'm called to do, what am I called to do? Glorify God. Not myself, but God. God's grace. I am called to be a reflector of God. And we've used that illustration. How do you glorify God? Remember the mirror in your bathroom, you walk into the bathroom, and you see the mirror because it's foggy, but if it's clean, you don't see the mirror, you see yourself, right? We're called to be a mirror that's not foggy, so that when others see us, they don't see us, they see Jesus. That's what it means to glorify God. As, as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's our calling, that God would be glorified. Now, in the bulletin, I mentioned the Lord's Supper. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper next week, Uh, so there's an error there. Just skip that error. God reminds us in the Lord's Supper why Christ suffered and died, but also he calls us to respond to Christ's completed work. And so what we find here today in our text is a response to the grace of God. What has Paul been doing throughout this letter? Has he been talking about the grace of God? Is that not what I said this letter? You could summarize the letter as a letter of grace? In chapter 1, it focuses on the triune God. God the Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, And then he goes on to describe what he's talking about. And then he prays. And then he comes back in chapter 2. Well, let's make sure you clearly understand grace. Well, how bad were you in Adam? You're dead in trespasses and sins. But God, verse 4, the grace of God. But God, who is rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us while we were yet dead, he, what happened? While we were yet dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Remember the first verb for the first three chapters of Ephesians. If you want to summarize the first few chapters in one word, it is what you're doing right now. And that is sit, seated in Christ in heavenly places there in verse 5 and 6. Then he went on again to say, okay, let's make sure we really get this down. Who are you in Adam? You're aliens. You're strangers. You're separated from God. You're separated from the people of God. But now, again. But now. Verse 13. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation. You have been reconciled to God, and you have been reconciled to the people of God. You are his beloved bride, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the church. And then, guess what? We come to our text, and again, he wants to make sure that we want to understand the grace of God. So what does he do? He says, now, this is the way you used to walk. Here's how you conducted your life. Don't do it. Why? That's not who you are. You're in Christ. You're a saint. You're holy in the sight of God. And so he begins chapter 4 with, first, how we are to conduct our life, and then our text here, how we are not to conduct our life. So notice in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. So he begins the second major verb that is in chapters 4, 5, and into 6, and that is walk, 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 walk. He says it over and over again. And here in our text is where he says, and don't walk. Walk this way, but don't walk this way. Okay? So walk worthy of your calling, verse 17. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Walk in love, verse, uh, chapter 5, 5. Walk as children of light, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 15. Walk accurately with care. So that is Paul's message in the second half of the book. Conduct your life following Jesus, walking. And so what he does, as you see in the first point in the outline, remember from where you came, verses 17 through 19. Notice what Paul starts off by saying, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So is Paul saying. Paul is saying, I'm in a court. I am testifying in the Lord. I charge you. I exhort you with all seriousness. I stand before the judge and jury. That's what he's saying. This is what you should not do. Now, why would he say that? Because we are tempted to do so. We're at war with the flesh. Which one of these three enemies is the most dangerous? The world, the flesh, or the devil? The flesh. The devil comes and goes. The world's out there. It's the flesh that is the greatest battle that we have. In, uh, in this body of death, Paul describes it. The old man, he says it here, we war against the flesh. He says, walk not as the Gentiles walk. Something that is possible? Yes. This is a warning. Take heed, lest you fall. And then he provides God's mirror in verses 17 through 19. Our natural state in Adam. Again, he says, Don't walk like the Gentiles. Well what are the Gentiles like? What is the temptation? And he goes through a series. Notice that series there in verse seven, beginning in verse seventeen. He says, Who's having their understanding darkened? They're guided by the desires of the flesh and of the mind, he said earlier in chapter two verse three. So this is focusing on Intellectual and moral darkness. In Adam, we were all darkness. We were in the kingdom of darkness. The devil is the ruler of that kingdom. He says, Do not walk in the emptiness, the vanity of their minds. Secondly, he says, What? They are alienated, here he goes back to chapter 2, they were alienated from the life of God. What does that mean? To be separated from the life of God means you're what? If you're separated from life, you are? Come on. Dead. Dead. Thank you. Right? Did Paul say that? that we were dead in trespasses and sins. He's already said that in chapter 2 in a couple of places. So number one, their understanding is darkness. They're alienated from God and from life through ignorance and blindness of heart. What do they need? What does someone in Adam need if their heart is dark and blind? Do you need heart surgery? Do you need a heart transplant? Can you do it? Is there anybody today can do a heart transplant on themselves physically? No. It has to be God. Does God say that promise to give a new heart? Is that in the Bible? And the answer is yes. Ezekiel, of all places, right? Ezekiel 36. I'll put a new heart in now. I'll take the heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh. We need heart surgery. Notice he goes on to say, without feeling. Their conscience is seared. the blindness of heart, and without feeling, without moral sensitivity. Not, no longer susceptible to pain. Many years ago when I was a kid, I was a little one, and my mom was ironing. And there was an iron there, and she had just finished ironing. And she said to me, don't touch the iron. So what did I, an obedient little boy, decide to do? When you tell someone not to do something, what is it that they want to do? Exactly what you told them not to do. Guess what I did? I touched it. I seared my finger. For a while there, after the blisters and all, could I feel? Could I feel with that seared finger? And the answer is no. No. Here, Paul says that in Adam, our morality is seared. There's not a sensitivity. We're not susceptible to pain. Is that a dangerous place to be? If you don't feel pain, what's going to happen to you? That's what leprosy does. It takes away the ability to feel pain. What happens when you can't feel pain? And you, and you burn your finger, you cut yourself or whatever, and you don't feel pain. You don't react. And what happens? You start losing your fingers and toes. That's what happens to lepers. They start because they don't feel pain. They injure themselves, and they don't know it. And they continue to go as if they didn't, and slowly but surely, they disintegrate. Is that a good way to describe our culture today? Is there a searing of the conscience? in our culture today, I don't care. I, I was listening to the, uh, um, or reading a, uh, an account of a Muslim born in Gaza, you may have read this one, as a kid, he was taught in first grade, kill Jews. You ever, did anybody read that? And then he went to work in Israel and he ultimately converted to, to Judaism. But he's talking about that—the the celebration of killing Jews. Not—I don't know if you've been hearing some of those reports that conscience is seared with a hot iron. No sensitivity. We are appalled by what happened in October seventh, right? Fourteen hundred people, innocents, of, most of them, right? No sensitivity. From the river to the sea. These are aspects of in Adam. Understanding darkened, alienated from the life of God, strangers to the life of God, blindness of heart, practical proof without feeling, without moral sensitivity. Debauchery, lasciviousness, excess, unlawful indulgence of lust. Boy, does that sound like our society today, is it not? Calvin said it this way. Let us note that until God has visited us and has come near to us and subdued us to himself, we shall always remain ignorant and blind wretches. There will be nothing but vanity in our understanding. In our hearts, there will be nothing but pride and presumption. Our desires will be so excessive that they will amount to insolence against God, and we shall fight against his justice justice and against all right. That's how he summarized what Paul is saying. Paul is saying what to us? Don't conduct your life this way. Don't walk this way. This is what you were. This is not who you are. I'm in Christ. My identity is in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, questions 3 through 11, are designed to do just that. Show us our need of a Savior. Do you need a Savior? Do you need Jesus? Right? You're dead without him. You understand? Is it healthy to know you've got a problem? It's important to know you've got a problem in order to deal with the problem. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. Paul does this again. Here's what you were. Don't go there. You're a new creature in Christ. But he goes on. Remember what, he's been, what you've been taught. Verse 20 twenty one, but, but, on the contrary, he does it again, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Isn't that great, Amen. Jesus is the truth. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's only the truth. Okay. And notice, he says, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you've been taught by him, That's not who you are. You're in Christ. He's the master. He's the Lord. uh, But not you have learned Christ. You are not ignorant. You are a disciple, a learner, a student, one taught. Different ways to say the same thing. One who has received instruction. Christ is the truth. And you've been taught the truth. That's not who you are. Stop living that way. That's what he's saying. Don't walk that way. He gives this forceful contrast. Why? Because we need to hear it again. I guess, right? Sometimes maybe we stop and we say, well, pastor, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Well, Paul seems to think it's important to say it again. Say it again. Say it again. Why? Are we at war? Do we fall back? Are we tempted? And the answer is yes. This is not who you are in Christ. You need to be taught. You need to be instructed. We are students in the school of Christ. Or not. Right? Either you're in Christ or outside. Okay. Okay. Notice he says, if so, you have, been, have heard and you have been taught, Calvin says, see to it that you do not make an empty profession, lest you should be convicted of falsehood before God and his angels, and that the name of Jesus Christ, which ought to be holy to you, be not taken in vain. Isn't that an interesting saying? We just confessed the uh, Nicene Creed. Did you take that in vain? Or were you serious? you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? you made a profession of faith. The truth is in Jesus. And so that's why in the Heidelberg Catechism, the largest section from, from question number 12 through question number 85, what is it designed to do? Teach us about Jesus. And what Jesus has done, uses the Apostles' Creed, focuses on the sacraments, pointing to who Jesus is and what Jesus did. The good news. But, as he says here, but you have not so learned Christ. Are you followers of Jesus Christ? Are you desirous? Again, one of the most important, uh, one of the important things is Do you have a teachable spirit? That's what Calvin said was the change in his life, is that God gave him a teachable spirit. Before that, he was an arrogant, prideful person that knew it all, and he was brilliant. And then God humbled him. Do you have that teachable spirit? Lord Jesus, I want to know what you have to say. I want to learn from you. I want to know my Savior and how I'm redeemed from all my sin and misery. Finally, third point. You're hanging in there? You guys are doing good? Everybody hanging in? Okay, we're working toward the end. Verses 22 through 24. We're going to get into more on this next week. Uh, That you put off concerning the former conduct, which he just described. The old man, which grows corrupt according to the seeful lusts, be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man. Okay. So what is he talking about? Thank you. Right? What's the third part of the catechism? How we to be thankful to God for such redemption. And what does he say to do? Put off the old man. Okay. That's what I was. It's not my identity anymore. My identity is not my sin. Contrary Those who say, I can be a homosexual Christian. No, you're either Christian or you're homosexual. You're not a homosexual Christian. Your identity is not your sin. Your identity is either in Christ or in Adam. We've got that before. We've said this before. Is it important? You're either in Christ or you're not. I do not identify myself with my sin. Do you? My sins are forgiven me. That's not who I am. I am righteous in Christ before God and in the era of eternal life. Wonderful statement. Where's that? In the catechism. Our response to Christ and his completed work of the cross is thankfulness. Thus, the third part of the catechism is thankfulness. Questions 86, 87, and so on. In those questions, the first thing they address is what Paul is saying here. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. But notice there's a center part. Put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is who I am in Christ. Now put on the new man, who I am in Christ. I'm not my sin. I no longer have a sin nature. I have a new nature in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. Now I'm called to live out what God is working in me, what God has done. Put off the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man. Again, we'll go into more detail. Actually, Paul does in the rest of the chap of the chapter. He starts saying, Well, let's be, get practical here. Okay, for you who are liars, or though you who have a tendency to lie to get out of trouble. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in trouble? And the, and oh, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lie to get out of trouble. Right? You've never done that. You have? Okay. He said, put away lying, put off all lying, and speak the truth. Whatever the consequence. Right? And he'll go on to describe various temptations that we face. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that next week. Verses 25 through 32. But again, God is calling us. And, and the song was, O man of God, we could say, O woman of God, O child of God, rise up, O man of God. Notice that statement. What did we just sing? Rise up, O man of God, O woman of God, O child of God, rise up, have done with lesser things. Is that all of those things that Paul just described? Are they lesser? alienated from the life of God, and so on. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of kings. Is that loving God with all our heart, mind, soul? Is that where he's coming from? Rise up, O man of God, the kingdom tarries long. Bring in the day of brotherhood, and then the night of wrong. Rise up, O oh men of God, the church for you does wait. her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. Lift high the cross of Christ, tread where his feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of God, rise up, O oh men of God. That's Paul's call, that's the Lord's call for us. Right? Because of grace, again, because of grace, how can I say thank you? God and that, and his answer is follow me, do what I say and do, amen? Amen. amen. Let's pray, Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us the Apostle Paul as we think about his life before Christ in Adam, how he persecuted and killed Christians, tried to destroy the church and wipe it off the face of the earth. And yet, in your great mercy and great love, you confronted him on that road to Damascus. You changed his heart. You granted him repentance. And you caused him to follow you. And now we are following following in his footsteps as he follows you. And we hear what you have taught him and through him. And we pray that you would enable us to identify with Christ more and more, to turn away from the old man, to put it to death, to put on the new man, which is created in you in righteousness and true holiness. We pray that you would enable us to hate our sin and turn from it always more and more, and to rejoice in you through Christ, causing us to take delight in living according to your will in all good works we don't we know that our our salvation is based on the work of Christ not our good works but yet we desire that the fruit of the spirit would be seen in us we pray this now in Jesus name let us respond to god's word by giving up his ties and our offering Let's pray, Father in heaven, we do come before you and lay before you these tithes and offerings, the works of our hands, acknowledging that all things come from you, and the abilities that have come from you, the opportunity that has come from you, the success has come from you, and we give back to you a portion in thankfulness for your grace. And we do acknowledge that all belongs to you, including ourselves. You are the Lord, and we're not. And so we commit these to you, and we commit all that we have under our hand, our responsibilities as fathers, as mothers, as husbands, as wives, as children, as students, whatever our callings are, enable us, O Lord, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, in our words, in our actions. We also thank you, Lord, that you have called us to pray together as the people of God. And as today is a day where in the RCUS we pray for the foreign missions, there's many, many opportunities for us to uh, serve you throughout the world. We think about the United Reformed Church in the, in the, um, in the Congo, and we ask, O oh Lord, for your blessing upon the, the pastors that are there and the members, uh, as uh, the Congo is constantly in a war. There's uh, unrest and battles Throughout, O oh, Lord, protect your people, strengthen your officers, and continue to cause the church there to grow. We lift up to you also our brothers and sisters in Kenya. We thank you, Lord, for the faithful service of the pastors and elders and deacons there and also of the, of the congregation. We thank you for this new building uh, that could be used both as a school uh, to train men for the ministry, but also as a church uh, in, a, in a large city there. In the, in the Kisi area, we ask, O oh Lord, for your blessing. We lift up to you the other denomination, the other churches that are coming together. We pray for unity there. We do lift up to you also the Philippines. We thank you, Lord, for the many uh, servants as we see this latest classes meeting and the ordaining of ministers and the training of men for the ministry. We ask, O oh Lord, your blessing upon Heidelberg Theological Seminary and the pastors that are, uh, professors that are there teaching, uh, brothers both in Africa and in uh, the Philippines, and as well as here in the States. We ask for guidance, for blessing and correction, and instruction in righteousness. We pray, O Lord, also for the other ministries. We think of the Reformed Faith and Life, French broadcast uh, in Africa and in France. We ask for your blessing on Reverend Cayenne. And as he has requested that you would raise up a man as he is aging and is desirous to have a, a Timothy, uh, someone to come alongside to train to take his place. We think of also the Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship and Reverend um, um, Atala, who also is aging. And we pray that you would raise up a man as well for him. We lift up to you, Westminster Biblical Missions and And there are many works that they're doing in Pakistan, in Eastern Europe, in Nepal, in Mexico. We ask, O Lord, for guidance and wisdom as well. We pray for the rose as they, uh, Dennis and uh, Julie, as they prepare to fly to Nepal to minister. We ask, O Lord, for your uh, blessing in that work. We lay before you the Spanish translation work of Reverend El Puche, and also for the Spanish uh, seminary that has been started where Apuche and uh, others are t- training men for the ministry. We ask for your blessing on all of these things. We lay before you our needs. We lift up to you, Ethel in particular, and ask, O oh Lord, that you would m- show mercy and grant unto her healing and comfort in this time. Um, we pray, O oh Lord, for James and family as they, as they uh, uh, deal with this latest news. We pray for unity in the body. We pray for the marriages in the church, and we pray for that unity as well. Uh, we Help, help us, O oh Lord, to be uh, parents that are raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray uh, for the children that they would honor and obey their parents. We ask for your grace in those, these things. And we pray this with the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Our Father... Our service this morning with hymn number, oh, thank you. Hymn number 433. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's stand. You know that he once was a slave? So when he sings about, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, he was a vile sailor. He was a slave owner. He was actually sold himself into slavery, and God delivered him from all of that, and God used him to write this amazing, this amazing song, kind of like what Paul's been talking here in our text. So, what's the best part of the service? God's blessing. Receive now God's blessing and benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes. Gloria, Patrick.